Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Wednesday, October 21st. My name's Arden Zwelling. Ben Nixon-Smith is with me. As always, our producers are Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. This week on ATL, we are going to talk to Andrew Tinnish, the Blue Jays VP of International Scouting. We're going to talk to him about the international market, which uh, obviously anything international this year has uh, been quite impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. So we're just going to talk to him about doing his job during these uh, capital T, these times. And, uh, you know, some some of the young international players that the Blue Jays have coming up through the system, some of them that you've obviously already seen in the big league level, like Alejandro Kirk and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., but maybe a couple names you're not that familiar with who the Blue Jays have signed internationally and uh, are currently trying to develop into big leaguers. But before we get to Andrew, then we uh, spoke to Mark Shapiro via Zoom today, uh, as all the Blue Jays media did, as he kind of held his, um, I don't know if it's like the season end or off season beginning press conference, but you know, he kind of does it every year and, you know, recaps some of the things that are going on and casts ahead. And this year in particular, his own contract status is uh, a topic because as we know, he was originally signed to a five-year deal that is set to expire this year in 2020. We haven't heard anything about an extension. We haven't heard anything about a new deal. We, we really don't know anything about, you know, his contract status going forward and, he hates talking about it and doesn't want to. Uh, it's the last topic that he wants to be discussing. So he, he really didn't share any details with us either. But sort of the the key thing that he said was a what he said all along is that he wants to be in Toronto long term, personally, professionally. He likes the job that he's doing. He likes being in Canada just due to you know sort of the political climate in the United States right now. His family enjoys it here, and he wants to finish the job. He said that for a while. But the thing that was somewhat new, or at least to my ears, today was um, him indicating that, quote, those things I just said, quote, have been reciprocated by the people I work for. So, Ben, that to me was new. And we don't know anything about a new contract or new terms or anything like that, an extension. But at least that to me does indicate that Mark Shapiro is going to be here for some time. Yeah, that's the way things uh, certainly look. You know, I think that without getting into the specifics, which, as you said, he clearly doesn't want to do, he gave strong indications that he expects to be here and that ownership wants him here. So I don't know, we're guessing at, at this point, as we record this, what that means exactly. And so you could reasonably guess that that means something is about to be finalized or they've already had some you know, significant talks. We don't know how many years that looks like. We don't know what the terms of that contract are, of course. But if he's to the point of saying publicly that it's been reciprocated, then you have to assume that at some point something will get done. Because, you know, if it wasn't, like, let's say there, you know, for whatever reason, one of the parties wanted to walk away from the other, then he's probably not hosting a season end press conference. He's probably not you know, taking the time to answer those questions, even in vague terms, which is how he answered them on Wednesday. But there's no rule saying he has to have a press conference. Like he could have sidestepped it and delayed. And I think that my interpretation, reading between the lines a little bit, is just that something will get done if it hasn't already. And I think that's the impression that uh, you know the Blue Jays seem to be comfortable leaving the general public with. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And this is the time of year for that type of business to be conducted. Because as you said, like the off season is about to begin. So you don't want to make a change at the top, you know, once free agency is already opened, or, you know, like after the GM meetings or something. And we have seen in the last uh, sort of week or two, you know, the Marlins have sort of shaken things up baseball operations wise, the Reds as well. So, you know, that, that those moves are happening right now. And this is the time when teams kind of get those things in order so yeah if there's an extension you know afoot i would assume that you know it's kind of occurring right now just you know my personal opinion like mark shapiro has done a fine job in his time in toronto you know and, and i think that you can point to many sort of objective things he's back in the postseason this year that's probably the easiest one right with a, a younger roster that outperformed its projections um and and played well you can look at the solution that was found with buffalo i mean this had to be the most challenging year that mark shapiro's had in toronto i don't know if it's his most challenging year in his career but i mean you think about some of the problem solving and some of the logistics and the things that were thrown at him and, and the blue jays entire front office and their entire organization i mean they, they have to get tremendous kudos for the job that they did and finding a home in buffalo and finding solutions and being creative and open-minded and just pulling off the season that they did i mean there's so many hours behind the scenes and so much work that went into that so you know i, I think that that is something that you can point to you can point to um the minor league system being uh you know a, a top five rated system across the industry whether you're looking at baseball america or mlb.com or baseball prospectus i mean they're all in agreement that you know the blue jays have taken their system from one that was not rated very highly to one that now is rated very highly in, in a pretty short amount of time. So you can look at that and you can look at the fact that the Blue Jays are starting to sort of take big swings in free agency with the signing of Hunjin Ryu. And obviously right. they're very involved in trying to sign other free agents last uh, off season. It sounds like that's going to be the case again going forward. So he's now sort of executing on something that was promised throughout his time was that like when it is time to contend and when it is time to go, we will and we will turn this thing around and build a winner and take the necessary steps and sort of flex some of the quote unquote financial flexibility that we have. So like, I, I just think you can point to a number of things, not even mentioning the minor league development complex or development center, whatever they're calling it now, the basically the, the complex in Dunedin, which uh, has been entirely overhauled and renovated. Mark Pyro said very bluntly, like, I believe it's going to be the best in major league baseball for a number of years. And it sounds like that is about ready to open within, uh, you know, sort of the next three weeks. Yeah, I'm really interested in sort of seeing some photos and seeing what the Blue Jays are going to be doing there. I think that when you look at the trend with minor league baseball contracting and with teams having to come up with more creative ways to develop players um, and to train and practice and learn in a COVID-19 world, you know, having that, Miley complex up and running and as state of the art as it is is actually a really really massive boon for the blue jays and is really really beneficial for them in again you know capital t's these times so uh i think there's a million reasons that mark shapiro should continue doing the the job that he's done for the last five years yeah i think you outlined it very comprehensively there you know when you look at farm system it's improved without a doubt over that time he inherited a very very good major league team and now the Blue Jays have a very different team, but a team that is good and that looks to be on the rise. So you've still got a good major league team. And the infrastructure around the organization is, without a doubt, stronger. And that's physical infrastructure, that's staffing infrastructure, of course, behind the scenes. And, you know, there's, it's impossible to really describe because we don't fully see that. But certainly the, the volume of, you know, let's say analysts would definitely have increased. They they're have a more robust front office. Their business operations has been 
modernized, transformed in the last five years with a lot of new hires that are doing good things. So yeah, you can see it from from all those angles why the Blue Jays would want Mark Shapiro back. I think that looking at it the other way, if you're Mark Shapiro, I mean, being the president of the Toronto Blue Jays is a pretty good job, right? Like, yeah. you know, he's he's got this team. They've advanced to the playoffs. They have a chance to do more. So certainly you can see the appeal of this job. And, and you know, like you said, you know, you look around the league, Angels, Marlins, Reds, Phillies, a lot of these teams are making changes, more potentially to come in the next little while. And, you know, some of those teams went for it in big ways. You know, you think about a team like the Angels, you know, they've gone out and certainly spent big. Shohei Otani one year, Justin Upton, uh, Anthony Rendon hasn't worked. Philly's gone out, Bryce Harper spent big on him, Zach Wheeler spent big on him, hasn't worked. That hasn't been the way that Mark Shapiro has done things. And that, you know, it's taken time, certainly, to get to this point. But you look at where things are holistically as an organization, which is how you have to kind of judge a president over the course of that term. And a lot of people, uh, you know, listening to this might have, uh, it's hard to even describe. Like there's this, there's this negativity sometimes and has yeah. been from the beginning with Mark Shapiro. There's no question about that. We, he, we had him on the podcast this time last year and he was talking about Shatkins, right? Like, <laughs> you know, he's, he knows, he knows right. that that's the case. Like that's, that's not a secret, but if you try to look at it objectively and look at where the organization is, there are a lot of points you can you can point to and say, all right, it's actually in a strong place in this way. And I think that even if you just remove him from it and just think generally, as an organization, like you don't want to have this revolving door in leadership positions. Like that's just that's just not good for anyone in the organization, like from top to bottom, right? To just have constantly new voices and like new plans, new thoughts at uh, at the leadership level. Like the organizations that are constantly kind of recycling through, like you can think of them in MLB, like Hello Mets, right? They're just like constantly kind of recycling through like leadership things don't usually go well and particularly at this point for the Blue Jays kind of in their trajectory of trying to execute a multiple year plan of trying to rebuild a contender after 15 and 16 and trying to make it more sustainable for the future like you're kind of in the middle of it so to change courses now and to bring in somebody else with different ideas and who's going to shake things up and go in a different direction, that would just undo so much progress that has been made. So, you know, there, there's no guarantee that there is like a World Series championship at the end of this journey and at the end of this rainbow. Um, like there's, you can't guarantee that, but I think you deserve to give it some more time to see if this is going to work. And as Mark Shapiro said, finish the job. Right, yeah. And, and it sounds as though the Blue Chase will have ample resources at their disposal to do that. And again, we're reading between the lines here because no team is going to sit there and say, we have exactly $35 million <laughs> to spend on free yeah. agency this year. Because then, you know, of course, that, that's ammunition in a sense that other teams and agents can use against you if they know that's exactly how much you have to spend. So it's just not the way teams operate, much as we might like to know what that figure is. It sounds as though those conversations are ongoing between Shapiro and ownership. But even though the spending has not been finalized, it appears that the Blue Jays definitely have a sense from ownership that they can spend again. And Shapiro mentioned last offseason where the Blue Jays were quite aggressive, far more aggressive in free agency than they had been in the past, signing Ryu, signing Tanner Roark, Travis Shaw. They were out there doing a lot of free agent signing. Those opportunities seem to be in front of them once again. Still the biggest question to me with this offseason is just how the Blue Jays can pitch potential uh, free agent signees on where they're going to be in 2021, right? right? And like, you know, Mark Shapiro doesn't know 
where the Blue Jays home games are going to be played in 2021. None of us do. Um, you know, he did say that there's reasons to be optimistic and hopeful that they can be played in Toronto. But, um, you know, as we're going to talk to Andrew Tinnish about later on in this podcast, like anybody who tries to predict this pandemic and where this thing's going to go, like you just end up looking foolish, right? There's no predicting it. It changes our, you know, beliefs, borders change, everything changes with this thing. So we can't sit here today and say where the Blue Jays can be playing regular season games in 2021. And so the Blue Jays can't say that in free agency. So how do you pitch a human being with a family, right? Maybe with a spouse and with kids, with parents about like playing in an international market during a pandemic, but then also maybe not playing in Toronto <laughs> and playing somewhere else. Like that's got to be the biggest difficulty for the Blue Jays this winter. Yeah, a hundred percent. I asked Shapiro about that and he, you know, he, he said, you got to be honest with these guys and pitch them on a multi-year. If it is a multi-year free agent, you say, hey, you know, you're going to hopefully spend most of that time in Toronto. And at least at this point too, you know, one of the points he made was the team itself is is a little bit of a, a sales pitch at this point, which I think is legit. Last offseason, it felt like a little bit of a stretch when they said that now going into 21, the team should be good next year. Whether they're a playoff team depends on the playoff format, depends on a lot of things, but they should at least be good next year. And, and so that is a potential selling point to any free agent that they're talking to. Yes, uh, we shall see what kind of business the Blue Jays are able to uh, to complete this offseason. When we come back after this break, we're going to talk to Andrew Tinnish, the Blue Jays VP of International Scouting. All that and so much more when we continue on At The Letters. Andrew Tinnish is with us. Andrew, thanks so much for the time, man. You know, it goes without saying that a pandemic has created challenges for everyone, and we've all had to get accustomed to doing our jobs a little bit differently. But your job title has the word international in it. So uh, (laughs) I can only imagine that the last half year has been uh, interesting and complicated for you. So, uh, you know, with, with the period being pushed back and restrictions on travel, all these things, I mean, how different is has your job been over the last uh, half year? Completely different. I mean, I, I've been focused on international specifically for the last five years or so, doing some international stuff prior to that and, and, and even before that, doing a lot of draft. But ultimately, I'm used to traveling. I'm used to being on the road. You know, it varies year to year, but you know, like you guys, I travel a lot and that could be anywhere from a, you know, 130 to 180 days a year. And I've been home for, you know, six months straight. So yeah, there are definitely a lot of challenges, um, but we're all going through this together, I guess, and and we're we're trying to make the best of the time that we have as far as you know, just things like staff development and and that sort of thing. But it, it it's tough. It's it's definitely unique. We've never gone through it before. You guys have never gone through it before. So we're all trying to adapt. When it comes to the eyes on the ground aspect of, of scouting, I mean, that's, as you mentioned with the travel, that's a huge part of it. You've done that on the amateur side. You've done that on the international side. Now, obviously, it's just impossible. So how, is there a substitute? Like, how do you even begin to approach that challenge? I think that, you know, as my sort of or scouting career has moved along, I, I, I first got involved in 03, and, and obviously things have changed quite a bit. We have a lot more access to information than we ever did before, whether that's just pure video or, you know, data, things like that. I guess I'd say this, if we were in a pandemic 10 years ago, I think we're in a better spot now to still try to make decisions, but it's, it, 
at the end of the day, it's still really challenging. I mean, this has altered everyone's schedule, right? So, you know, when you think about countries like Dominican Republic and, and Venezuela, especially, you know, there's countrywide lockdowns, they're loosening some of the restrictions now, but the young players who are used to being at the ballpark six days a week for hours on end, you know, they've had to adjust too, because they can't, you know, they don't have that same access. And, you know, I've seen video of players like literally, you know, taking swings in, in backyards into like makeshift nets with tees using, I don't even know what to call. It. I don't know if they're baseballs or what, but, you know, I've seen some really creative videos where players are just trying to do whatever they can to stay in shape or to progress. You know, it, it's, it's, it's really challenging. It's kind of interesting to see how, you know, how creative people can, uh, can be. So my understanding is there was kind of this period where uh, you're actually prohibited from seeing players in person. And then, right. uh, you know, you could, but it had to be someone locally doing it. Like you couldn't put somebody on a, on a plane or in a hotel. And then now those restrictions have been somewhat lifted. Like where are things at with in-person scouting now? Yeah. So, so we were on full lockdown for quite a while until, you know, a few weeks ago. And actually, I guess into, let's say, the middle of September. And they opened up scouting at the international level for local scouts. So, you know, for example, Sandy Rosario, our director, he lives just north of Santo Domingo. He was able to go out and to see, see players locally. Things opened up for international travel as of October 1st. I myself have not traveled yet. And, and you know, my understanding from you know, a lot of the director VPs that I've just, you know, talked to cross checkers, the majority of people are not traveling internationally yet and just sort of kind of getting back to things slowly on the ground at the local level. You know, we're, we're, look, staff health and safety is first and foremost. So we've had a, a, a bunch of zoom calls and, and basically we put together a pretty comprehensive protocol, even for our guys locally to go uh, to a ballpark. Um, we don't want them going too far from home. We don't want them going for too long. And we want them to obviously take all the necessary precautions so that they're safe. For sure. Now, when it comes to, say, scouting on video, there's a lot that you can pick up on video. If you have the right angle, you can obviously see the the break on a good breaking ball, or you can see you know the mechanics of a hitter's swing. There are also things that you can't pick up. And that, you know, to an extent, you guys are, are going to have to kind of fill in around the edges and, and I guess miss some of that information, try to make some educated guesses. What are some of the things that, you know, you being there on the ground or other scouts being there on the ground that maybe have been lost, not just for the Toronto Blue Jays, but I mean, industry-wide in a year like this? I think what's, what's the, the advantage of being at the ballpark, especially international, where you just, you don't have the same uh, amount of information as you would, you know, certainly at the big league level, but even with pretty much every college in the U.S. And, and, and a lot of high school tournaments and events and showcases is that, you know, with international, you just, if I'm watching on video, I'm not seeing, you know, I, I could see a kid swing from the open side, but it, it's hard to really tell how hard the ball was actually hit, where it traveled to, how far it went, that sort of thing. So you're, you're losing that element of like what is actually happening outside of your shot, right? Uh, whatever video angle that you, uh, that you do have, you know, again, we watch games on TV all the time. You guys watch games on TV all the time from the center field angle. I've written reports and video reports, I guess, so to speak, from that angle. But generally speaking, I, like I've scouted my whole life from behind home plate or the open side for hitters, right? So, again, 
it's just th- there's no substitute for being in the ballpark. I think that, you know, one other thing that we're huge on, obviously, and a lot of teams are is makeup, right? And, and you know, you watch a five-minute video of a kid taking BP infield, you know, maybe some live ABs. You're not really getting any kind of feel for, like, what kind of teammate he is, you know, what type of work or what type of effort and energy he's putting on the field that you would if you're, if you're there. And, and with those young kids, that's such a big element of it too, right? Because if you're going to give a million dollars or $2 million to a 16 year old kid from Dominican or Venezuela or Mexico or wherever, you really want to know the person, you know, you want to know that like their, their self drive is there and that they're legitimately focused on not just signing, but like being great and getting to the big leagues, you know? I also wonder about the times that maybe you would go to look at one guy at a workout and then there's this other guy there who you weren't even aware of. Like, that's my understanding of like the Kirk story who like, we'll talk about him later. But as far as I know, like you, you were looking at someone else and then he stood out. So is it kind of harder to unearth some of those diamonds in the rough due to some of these restrictions? Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of thing happens a lot more internationally than it, than it does domestically. And I think part of it is just, there's so much more structure in, in the U.S. with the collegiate system, the high school system, the showcase circuit. Obviously, you know, there, there's, I guess on average, more scouts uh, domestically than there are internationally. And internationally, you've just got, you've got like academies spread out all over these countries, you know, and, and they're not part of like the NCAA or, you know, this high school circuit or perfect game. Like they're just kind of spread out all over the place. So, yeah, I mean, that those kind of things happen. They happen with Kirk. They happen with, you know, a kid, Brito, that we just signed this past year for, I want to say we signed him for 600 grand. We were at a workout and we were watching two sort of hitters who are expected to get, you know, well into the seven figures. And they needed a third hitter to kind of step in and, and, and get the bulk of the at-bats with these guys just so they weren't flip-flopping. So they threw in this third hitter, Peñier Brito. And I remember, you know, one of our special assignment scouts and our director and I walked out of there and we we're like, man, about this guy? <laughs> it's pretty good. You know, and time will tell, but those kind of stories happen all the time down there. For sure. For sure. So, you know, this is probably an unfair question because if someone were to ask me, you know, when's the next time that I'm going to be on the road? I like, I would have no idea. I couldn't answer it, but I'll ask you anyway. I mean, do you have, do you have any sense of when you might be, you know, going out there again and, and seeing those players in person? I don't have a, an answer that I can give you with full certainty, obviously, but I know like the, the signing period has been pushed back. The July 2nd date has been pu- pushed back to January 15th. So my, my hope is to get down there shortly before that, to be down there for that, to be with, you know, our players that we're going to sign, to be with our staff. I'd love to say, hey, I'll be down there in, in November or December, but I, I just – it's it's too hard to predict at this point. But I, I feel like I'm shooting for that sort of early, mid-January time frame, you know, as long as things are, I guess, looking somewhat better, you know. You mentioned the, the period for – this year being pushed back to January 15th. I'm sure that, you know, even before the pandemic, you already had a pretty decent idea of what was going to happen in July or what you wanted to do. A lot of that groundwork had been done. So I wonder if the impact of the pandemic and these changes will actually be felt more so on your class of 2022 or 23. Like, would that be the case? 
<laughs> what, what do you, as far as because well, you've got to be working ahead, right? Like, don't you have? Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, no. That that's that's a fair point. Yeah. I, again, it, it's it's such a challenging thing that we're going through, and and you know, one thing that that I've seen a lot more of now is that there are a lot of agencies that are running virtual events and posting them on on YouTube or sending you links to you know Dropbox links links and things like that and and so we're trying to you know gather as much information and watch as much video as as we can but it's it's really really difficult to to again I don't want to make we don't want to make big financial decisions without you know having as much information as we can. And, and, and hopefully we won't be put in a position where we have to do that. You know, let's, let's hope for a vaccine and this thing to start heading in the right direction so that it doesn't, you know, get to that point. But, you know, I think that like you look at the 21 class, for example, so the 20 class is signing in 21. My sense is that there's a good chance that the 21 class will actually sign in 22. Right. So there is some time, but again, we, you know, Anyone who's tried to predict this thing is uh, me smarter than me. I, I don't. I don't. I don't have all the answers here. So I don't think anyone does. That's that's yeah. for sure. I, you know, when you look at these sixteen-year-olds signing, right? And you sometimes they they surface in in online before they're even sixteen, of course. And it can oh, seem, sure. yeah. I mean, that's uh, without a doubt. But it, it can seem really distant at times. And then you see it, the Toronto Blue Jays in real life this year and they have guys like Vlad Jr. and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Kirk who I already mentioned before and then you see like these these young players kind of performing at the major league level so I, I wanted to kind of ask you what you've seen from let's let's kind of start with Vlad here compared to when you first saw him which I presume was probably in 2000 well probably actually before he actually signed and 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 to where he is now what have you seen from Vlad over the last five six seven years well I remember seeing him in early 2015 probably even in the in 2014 in the summer of 2014 and you know the 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 one thing that stands out about him is that he could always hit and he hit a lot the guerreros have a almost like a compound in this town called Nizao in Dominican which is west of Santo Domingo and yeah, I remember actually driving there thinking like where are we going like we went through this little town and then we're going through the woods and we're driving along this river and I'm like, what is going on here? And then it opens up and here's this field kind of in the middle of nowhere. And they had like these four wheelers that they would ride over uh, to the field. And, and he would literally take hundreds of swings on the field every day, hundreds of swings. Obviously, you know, he's playing first base now. I definitely was not sure at the time where I thought he was going to play. He, we had him take ground balls. We had him take some balls in the outfield. We had him take ground balls at third and at first. Uh, but the one thing that stood out was just his ability to hit, you know, his his advanced feel for recognizing spin, his advanced feel for hitting a fastball. I mean, even at like 14, 15 years old, you know, you could see that it was pretty special. And, you know, I, I think that like people look at the the, the stat line and, and you say, wow, you know, it, it's so difficult for him to live up to expectations, right? Totally. But for his age and he's done some pretty good things. Yeah. Like it's pretty impressive what he's done. And I think he's going to keep getting better. I really do. You know, I, I think that, I think that Vlad, when he gets to like 24, 25 years old, has a chance to be just an absolute monster because the the contact skills that he has are, are you know, with obviously the bat speed and, and power and the exit field numbers are, are really, really hard to come by. 
it's a good combination to have. So when he is 25, that will be a decade after the story you just told. That's crazy. Right? So, yeah. so, and you have to make a decision on these players when they are 15 or 16, you know, at that age. How do you project out to 24, 25 from, from such a young age? Yeah, it's really hard. Uh, I, I think that having been involved in scouting at the major league, minor league, amateur and international levels, having scouted players in college, high school, junior college, big leagues, double A, lower minors and international. It, it's, there's no question. It's the most challenging market. It's, it's such a risk reward market. I think that, you know, for, for a position player, you know, we look at how they move their athleticism. I think that that's one where you kind of look a lot at body structure and maybe not pure strength and size in, in the moment because you know, what, what did we look like when we were 14, 15 years old? Like I was like a pipe cleaner, you know, I was so, oh, yeah. skinny. you know, yeah, I couldn't put a ball out of like a 250 foot, you know, park. So, you know, you're looking at a lot of like just actual swing mechanics, looseness, ability to make consistent contact against, you know, decent pitching. And the one thing I'd say is that you just, you can't be scared you know, you just, you, you, you can't be scared to make decisions in that market because if you are, you know, you're going to miss out, you know, in the talented players. And look, there's no question I've made mistakes in this area, signing players for, you know, a lot of money who, who haven't panned out the way that I had hoped for that we had expected, but you can't be afraid and, and you have to kind of look at those mistakes you make and, and learn from them and say, okay, you know what, I'm going to apply this to the next time I have to make a decision on this type of player. And, and hopefully, hopefully I won't make that same mistake twice. Well, you talk about body types and body structure, young Alejandro Kirk at the big league level has a, a pretty, unti- you know, not a prototypical athlete's body, but he does some impressive things athletically, I would say in the box. And he's very balanced. And I mean, his bat just moves through the zone. What did you see from him at, at 15 in terms of a body type that kind of gave you confidence that he was going to be the player that, that he's becoming? Yeah. So I think that like, you know, in my early days of scouting, I tied athleticism a lot to what the body looks like. Right. And, and, and really for me now, I mean, look, there's no question that that's important because you have to factor that into how you think a player is going to age and how they're going to hold up as they get later in their career. But for me, athleticism is really about how you move, how you move, how you react, you know, your flexibility, your agility. And Kirky, you know, again, he, you know, is it the prototypical body? Is, is it how you draw it up? No, of course not. But he does have that athleticism. There, there are things that he does, like you said, in the box, behind the plate, he moves a lot better than you would expect. And, and look, I think there's a lot of examples of, of catchers who, you know, are, are built maybe not the same way uh, as Kirky exactly, but, you know, the Molina brothers kind of come to mind. And a lot of it has to do with like flexibility in the hips and that sort of twitchiness, that ability to sort of react. It also has to do with how they can kind of slow the game down behind the plate or in the batter's box. And I think Kirby does that really well. And, and it, it reminds me of a time, the first time he came into Dominican after we had signed him, he was catching a pen for a kid named uh, Brian Mejia. And, and Mejia is still in our system and he throws really hard. He was like 91, 95 with massive, massive life on his ball. 
but really inconsistent command. And Kirky just got back there and, and watching him receive, like he's catching like these bowling ball sinkers, like it's absolutely nothing. And obviously, you know, that gets magnified, you know, when you have to catch Nate Pearson and, and, and Merriweather and Jordan Romano, it's a little different, but you know, at a young age, he had that ability to just kind of like those soft hands to kind of slow things down behind the plate. And he absolutely does that in the batter's box, right? I mean, you watch him hit, there's no rush, right? He can slow things down. It's very controlled. The takes are controlled. He's not off balance. And and he did that uh, as a, a, a teenager, as a 17-year-old. I think he was like 17 or 18 when we signed him. But, you know, it's just those slow controlled movements, the ability to see the ball and make hard, solid contact, right? And his swing... His swing is such where his barrel gets on plane really early and it's in the zone for a long time. And, and he's got those short arms, which kind of gives him that ability to like hit the ball with authority to all fields, right? I mean, you've seen him hit balls to the opposite field really well, you know, the, the, the home run, the ball off the wall. And then you've also seen him turn on I can't remember if it was Loisaga or, or who it was, like 98 or 97, like middle in. You know, that short, compact stroke with his approach, his eye, and like how his barrel is on plane, he can do those things. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's 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 impressive for sure. And so I, I almost want to get a little bit granular here with one of the words you used there, because I can kind of picture, you know, balance, I can picture agility, I can picture when you're talking about flexibility, and I guess this might even be more important for a catcher. What does that look like? Like if you're watching, you know, in person or on TV, how can you tell that a player's flexible? I think it's it's the guys who can get really low. You know, like if you watch catchers not as much from behind, but from the open side, you can see how low they can get with their butt. They can get down really low. Ken Huckabee was a great example of that. Huck like could get, I remember watching him catch duck all the time. Like he was so, so low to the ground, just having that kind of flexibility in your knees and your hips to get down really low. And then also having that sort of ability to like laterally move side to side, almost like you're kind of sliding from side to side, Right. you know, Get down someday in a crouch and try and <laughs> no, do it. It's hard. Not I mean, trying it is that. not easy. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. I'm too old for that. Yeah, yeah. me too. Me too. So, yeah, like that's th- those kind of things. You can see it. It's tough when you have a quick, short look at a guy, but when you see a guy a bunch of times, and it's actually not the worst thing in the world when there's a pitcher on the mound who's a little erratic because it gives you a good feel for like how they're keeping the ball in front of them. So I think we always make too much out of um, positions when we talk about like players, you know, coming up through the minors, players that are signed, young players, right? Because like a in MLB, what is the position a more with shifts and, right. and everything? But B, like it sounds like you're more so just looking at pure raw athleticism rather than this guy's a shortstop, this guy's a second baseman. Like I think a lot of people look at the players that come out of the international market for you guys, whether it's like Martinez or Otto Lopez up the middle guys. And they think that you have this sort of up the middle obsession, but I think it's more so just trying to find athletes who could move around. Yeah. I think that, I think that like there's a bad element that we like, there is a defensive element that we like, and there's an athleticism element that we like, and obviously a makeup element that we like. And I think on the defensive part, like, you know, look at the end of the day, whether it's international high school or college, the, the reality is this, is that like, here are all the shortstops. There's tons of them. And it just kind of gets narrow, you know, as, as you sort of move up and, and it becomes harder and harder to be a really good everyday player 
in the middle of the field where you're getting a lot of balls, right? Whether that's shortstop, you know, obviously more so than second base, but second base to a lesser extent and, and center field. So I, I think there are things that, you know, we do look for for those three like kind of key spots, center field, shortstop and catcher. And they are important. But again, like trying to, hey, this 16-year-old's going to do this in 10 years or eight years or whatever it is, like that's challenging. So you, you do have to go a lot on, you just sort of generally speaking, like how they move and, you know, their instincts and things like that. Another player on this on this 2020 team who really impressed was Guriel Jr. And, you know, again, a guy, obviously, it's not like he's an unknown just given his family background, but what strides have you seen him take? I guess it was four years ago now that you signed him and presumably he was on the radar before that. Well, for starters, he's really, he's really kind of found his spot in the outfield, right? I mean, he looks really comfortable out there. You know, it doesn't always look easy, but he certainly makes a lot of plays out there and his arm has played exceptionally well out there, extremely accurate and strong. You know, I find that he often plays the outfield like an infielder in a sense. And, And what I mean by that is he's, he's, he's getting the ball in quickly. He's playing it like there's nobody in front of him, which I, you know, like a lot, you know, from an offensive perspective, he's always hit the ball pretty hard. Um, And, you know, for a guy who has some power, he, you know, he cut strikeouts down this year, which was nice. You know, he can hit a good fastball. He is kind of a streaky guy in that sense, you know, like he'll go on a little streak where he may struggle for five or six games and, but he's also got that ability to carry a team for a week or, 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 you know, through a homestand or something like that. I remember when I first saw him in, uh, gosh, it would have been in the, in the, it was a few months before, a few months before we signed him. Actually, it wasn't the first time I saw him, but it was, it was, they had a, his agent had a big showcase in Panama. And I just, I, I even noticed it then. Like, I love the way how, I love how he, interacted with like the people like the players so he's working out with a bunch of young kids and everybody knows that he's the show there but he didn't act like it he treated everyone really well one of our prospects Leo Jimenez was actually there at the time and you know just just the way he went about his business working through the this workout and and live VP setting and you know how he communicated with the younger players who some of them will never sign like it just seemed like a real genuine guy gets that from his parents um and and his father is obviously you know a legend in cuba you know and one of the stories that that he told me or the dad told me was that that he would before the kids could go out and play he would make them watch a game on tv for like five innings and like they would talk through it and you know just being around it like he would learn the game and a lot of the little things of the game and okay now you guys can go out and go swing the bat and go do whatever Awesome. But uh, yeah, pretty, pretty neat though. Yeah. People don't talk about him when they talk about the pedigree, you know, with Bichette and Guerrero and Biggio, but he's got it. I mean, his dad's a Cuban royalty. Yeah. He's it, been around it forever. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> Another guy I want to ask you about is Elvis Martinez, who uh, I, I have never seen him play baseball. I can't tell you the, you know, the first thing about him other than that he's a shortstop out of the DR, but I can see the signing bonus that he got. Uh, and it is rather sizable at three and a half million dollars. And Vlad was 3.9, which was the highest he'd ever awarded. So that right there tells me something about how you guys feel about this guy. I mean, what can you tell us about Elvis Martinez and, and you know, what made you want to make that kind of commitment to him? Yeah. So again, this goes back to like the, the, you, you can't be scared to, 
you know, to make these types of decisions when you feel like you have the right player and you have the boxes checked. When I saw Relvis and, and probably got like a good 50, 60 at-bats with him before uh, we actually signed him, um, you know, there's a handful of hitters down there that I've seen where it just sort of stands out to you, where you check every box from an offensive perspective. You feel like, okay, I feel like this guy's got a chance to hit for average. I feel like this guy's got a chance to hit for power. I feel like this guy's got plate discipline. And I, and I like the athleticism in the box and the looseness to the swing and like the, the sort of mechanical components check out. Arelvis did all those things for me. And like, you know, there's not too many guys that have done that. You know, the, the Vlads of the world, the Wander Francos of the world. I remember seeing him when he was 15 years old facing a pitcher throwing, you know, 92, 95 miles an hour and then like flipping in like an 83 mile an hour slider and like just the ability to hit the velocity and also either lay off or stay back on the spin at that age was really impressive. He's strong. Like he's, he's, I think he's got a chance to be big. He's not big yet, but the ball comes off his bat differently. You know, it, it really does. If you watch him in batting practice, you know, if you put him in a group with even our upper level, better, stronger prospects, like the ball just comes off his bat a little bit differently than it does the other guys. It's loud. Um, it's loose. You know, he's got a big leg kick. There's a lot of moving parts, but he gets things done on time. He's sneaky athletic. He's got good hands and, and arm strength. And, and um, obviously the, the first season last year, you know, the GCL is not an easy league to hit in. You know, a 17-year-old in the GCL with a 901 OPS, and I think he was second in the league in home runs and extra base hits, and the guy who had the lead was like five years older than him. So there's a lot to uh, a lot to like there, but, but you know, the things that really sort of stand out are the plate discipline. You know, 9% walk rate, 18% strikeout rate, which, which is for a kid that age in a league where the average age is like two or three years older than that, it's, that's pretty impressive. For sure, for sure. It, you know, beyond Martinez, who else should we be watching? Who else should Blue Jays fans kind of have an eye out for in the next little bit? Yeah, I think that the the look there's between you know the draft and international. I, I feel like we're in a pretty good position with our prospects uh, from an international perspective. I think definitely the next guy to keep your eye on is Gabriel Moreno, um, catcher who uh, tore it up at the alt site this year. Um, you know, Gabby. Gabby was in Lansing last year, had a really strong season there and, you know, a really good experience in the all, I want to say he had like an 1100 OPS or something like that. And in about 80 or so played appearances, bunch of extra base hits, hit a few home runs, super athletic Venezuelan catcher who was an infielder uh, when we were initially scouting him. You know, he, he's a he's an elite contact guy. He's aggressive, but he doesn't swing and miss. And he's got some strength and power. And, and like I said, that athleticism and the, the ability to catch is is pretty uh, pretty impressive. So Gabby would, would probably be the main guy to kind of keep your eyes on. You know, you mentioned Otto Lopez. We talked about Leo Jimenez. You know, the other guy who would be interesting is, and he's coming back from Tommy John, and, uh, well, two guys, Pardino, who you, you're familiar with, but um, – Zulueto was a Cuban kid that we signed last May or June, I want to say it was. And he, when we saw him, he was 92 to 97 and with a, uh, a torn UCL. Wow. Um, so, you know, 
hopefully uh, those those numbers tick up uh, e- even more so. Um, but he's another one to keep uh, keep your eyes and ears on for sure. Maybe I can uh, just wrap up by going way off the board here and asking you about Sam Roberts. Because oh. uh, <laughs> I, you know, that question that Ben asked you, like I was asking that at spring pre-pandemic, and his name was kind of coming up as a sleeper this year. Yeah, I love Sam. Sam, as as you guys know, is a, a, a teen, a young Dutch pitcher, maybe top three deliveries of an amateur that I've ever seen. Wow. And it's really interesting how his, his dad taught him a delivery. You know, he showed me this dad showed me video when I was over there in Holland last year when he was 10 years old, I mean, an immaculate delivery at 10. It's a pure sort of case of projection based on delivery, arm action, body and athleticism. You know, when we first saw him, he was like 82, 84 miles an hour. And that would have been, you know, in the summer of 18, ticked up a few clicks leading into the spring of, of 19. And, you know, now he's touched as high as 93, you know, and pitched at like 90, 91 last year in the GCL in his short stint. So, big time ceiling, big time pitching IQ. Like you can have really, really interesting conversations with this kid. And like I said, like just elite, elite delivery and, and great worker. So he's my sleeper, you know, be here in a few years. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. He's such a cool backstory coming out of Netherlands. Um, and you, ju- you mentioned you went over there. I mean, how do you come about discovering this you know, Dutch pitcher and then what is kind of the process of getting somebody out of this sort of untypical market? Yeah. So, I mean, look, when, when last year, as you guys remember, we traded Dwight Smith Jr. and Kendris Morales and we acquired cap space for them. And it was really at the end of the period. So, you know, look at that time, you got to be a little bit creative because there's, there's maybe a little less value in the cap space because, you know, most of the players have already signed, right? Like 95% or more of the players from that period had already signed. So that money went towards Zulueta, Casimiri, who's also from Holland, and and Roberts. And Casimiri, we had a little bit more of a track record with, had seen a couple of times here and there at some international tournaments and, and um, an MLB international showcase. But we had a report Harry Einbinder, our manager, amateur international scouting, had, had put him in as like a projection type because of the delivery. He saw him in Italy in a tournament that summer of 18 when he was throwing 82, 84. And you kind of, you know, at that point, like you kind of got get it creative with what you're going to do with, with your money, right? So I kind of bounced around literally the world, Latin America, Holland, and uh, Taiwan, just to try and find you know a couple of pieces that we could kind of add before the money expired and you know the one thing I'll say is that the 18 and under national program in Holland is really good they do a really really good job with pitchers so there's a few pitchers that have signed out of there and I suspect that there'll be some more down the road it's a really really well-run program and they pitch in what's called the honkball league and they have different levels so Sem and Casimiri were pitching in the hold class, the highest level. And I guess if I had to break it down, I would say it's probably the equivalent of like a decent division two conference over here. So, I mean, they're at the time, they're 17 years old pitching in basically division two and, and Roberts was dominating. Casimiri's coming out of the pen. He, he did really well. Roberts was dominating. He was like basically the best starter in the league. And, you know, at the t- you know, again, throwing like 83, 87 at that point. So that's a fun one. Like, I think if he gets to the big league someday, that's, that's 
one where you know we'll look back and and kind of say like you know as a group that was a that was a pretty good uh pretty good job of scouting you know and i think he's got a chance to be there do you think there's a lot more room in those sort of non-traditional markets to tap into some you know talent that maybe isn't getting opportunity like pardino out of brazil as well right like some of this you know talent doesn't necessarily get the opportunities just because they're not from places where typically big leaguers come from yeah i think that like i mean look at the end of the day like Outside of the U.S., you're still looking at, you know, you're looking at Dominican, you're looking at Venezuela, Mexico, obviously Japan from a different sort of angle or, or time frame and, and Korea. Like these are the countries that are, you know, outside of the U.S. that are still producing the most minor league, major league players. But, yeah, you have to keep an open mind, right? You have to look for that next sort of – and it may just be a player here and a player there, but – you know, that's why it's it's important to keep your kind of eyes and ears open and try to, you know, I mean, look, there was a run of a bunch of infielders who signed out of like Curacao and Aruba, right, who, I mean, make that Dutch team and the WBC pretty competitive when you've got like the Bogarts and right. the <laughs> Albies and Gregoriuses and whatnot, Profars running around the field. Like, it's pretty impressive, the, uh, the, the talent. So Brazil, I think with Pardinho, it was just – I'm not saying Brazil isn't, you know, up and coming and going to be better, but like that was sort of a unique case of a kid who had um, a real strong Japanese influence in, in baseball, which his delivery sort of looks like a typical Japanese starter. Um, and, and he was pretty advanced, but yeah, I mean, I like traveling and, and, you know, hanging out in Amsterdam is, uh, is pretty fun. We did a couple of those trips last year and they were worthwhile. Yeah. I hope you get to do it again soon, man. I hope we all do. Thank you so much for your time today. Can't uh, thank you enough. All the best. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, if we ever um, get a vaccine and get back to like uh, life where you and I get to travel for stories and kind of go around and observe uh, things, I am immediately pitching Sportsnet on the scouting trip to uh, Netherlands with Andrew Tinnish. That's what I'd like to do. I think it has to be at the letters, live on location. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to be there as well. It's not, yeah, Amsterdam is an amazing place, obviously. Those are the the trips that certainly inspire a lot of envy. You know, heading into Venezuela when, you know, right. maybe things are less than safe or less than secure, probably less of a trip that's going to inspire the same kind of envy. But yeah, great stuff from Andrew Tinnish, of course, and uh, many thanks to him for his time. Yes, super, super interesting stuff. So thanks to him. Uh, thanks as always to our producers, uh, Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni for helping us out. Thanks to you for listening. We're going to be back next week to finally recap the uh, 2020 over-unders. We put it off long enough and uh, it is time for uh, somebody to win and somebody to lose. And we might have a, a special guest to help us just work through those when uh, we talk about it next week. Well, that's next week. He's Ben Nixon-Smith. I'm Arden Zwelling. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time on At The Letters.